One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The Howl of a Wolf. Somewhere in a huge swathe of northeastern Asia, the great predator, the cane, the dog! Were bones thrown from the campfire towards hungry eyes in the night? Did a pair of pups fall into a camp? Did we chase mammoths together over precipitous cliffs? Did someone throw a stick? Did we stand eye to eye with the great grey wolf? staring into each other's souls and say, yeah, I'd like to go for a walk in the park. Hello, welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of inventions, brought to you by History Hit and Dallas Campbell. Oh, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. It's a big one today, the invention of dogs. How did dogs happen? How did we turn wolves into dogs? My guest today is Gregor Larson, an evolutionary geneticist who has studied the domestication of not only dogs, but pigs and chickens and cattle and more. But we talk about dogs, dog breeds, domestication, that kind of stuff. We talk about Japanese haiku crabs, which has a really interesting story, which I remember from watching Carl Sagan. I'm not sure if it's true, but it's an interesting story anyway. We talk about a strange experiment involving foxes in Soviet Russia and Japanese wasps and the Nazis. Turns out that when you start asking, how did we invent dogs, you can end up anywhere. Enjoy. Honestly, like, dogs are the best invention ever. Like, who invented dogs? Honestly, that was like, yes, I approve. For a lot of people, and myself included, sounds like you too, dogs are great, right? I mean, it's, it's hard not to love a dog. And I think it is that, that kind of love that doesn't require anything of you 
you know, just almost hero worship. It's not even love, really, and sometimes. It's just like you have a dog, and it just looks at you, and no matter what kind of day you've had, your dog is going to love you. The whole unrequited nature of all this stuff. And that's, that is amazing. Dogs also have an enormous negative global environmental footprint, though, and there is that to consider. Don't tell me Honestly, we've got enough to worry about. Why do dogs have a negative impact? Well, you got to feed them. You got to clean up their poo. You have to provide space for them. You have to ensure that they, I mean, how many people do dogs kill a year? It's not a small number, right? Really? Oh, God. I mean, just on the BBC, it's almost weekly. Dangerous dogs have to be put down. Somebody's aunt went into the house. A toddler. I mean, just in the last couple of weeks alone, there's been at least a handful of deaths in the UK that have been really. Yeah. But what about accidents of falling out of the bath? Yeah. But so if you got rid of baths, that wouldn't happen. I mean, death is like that, right? Death is going to get you in one way or another. But yeah. if you didn't have dogs, there would be no dogs to kill you. Is my point. But so. <laughs> that's true. Okay, let's do some science because that's why we're here. Dogs domestication. Take us back in our DeLorean, all the way back to when, tell us when, and what did the world look like? And before there were dogs, presuming they were wolves and such. Yeah, so wolves have been kicking around for a very long time. And wolves are phenomenal because they have a distribution that at its maximum covered basically all of Eurasia. Everything as far west as you want to get all the way out east, there's native populations of wolves in Japan, in the UK, all over Russia, all the way down south, even into uh, Nepal, India, South Asia. There's golden jackals and things in North Africa. They're there. So as soon as you get a little bit further than that, wolves stop. But that's a huge area. And then, of course, North America, too. Right. So there are Alaska, Canada, all the way down into uh, the southern uh, U.S. and then kind of peter out around Mexico, where you don't really get wolves much further south than that. So wolves have been there for hundreds of thousands of years, and they are exceedingly plastic. There's really no one wolf. There are some wolves that operate in packs that wean their young on a particular hunting style. There are wolves that are attracted to like caribou in Canada, where they follow the caribou year-round as they're migrating back and forth and are very attracted. That there's some wolves in North America, in Northwest, that are just hanging out in the forests a lot and have a very seasonally differentiated diet, and so they take advantage of different things at different times. There are lone wolves uh, in places that are much smaller in sort of the, in the Near East, where they are not pack hunters; they're just individual animals. And so when we think of about a wolf, we have to really accept that there is a massive variability okay. in that entire range of what a wolf could be or has been before people started exterminating them or at least persecuting them. So they occupy just a small little proportion of what their former range was. So not just one wolf, lots of different wolves. Lots of different kinds of wolves that are very differentiated by population and, and a huge amount of wolves. What we put out a paper last year looking at wolf genomics over about 100, 150,000 years, and you see a lot of this variability initially coming onto the scene in Eastern Asia and then spreading west. So you got a lot of connectivity, but also a lot of segregation and differentiation between wolf populations as well. So there's, it's, but they're, it, they're just amazing because they're just everywhere. And that makes it hard then to establish both the precise population, the time and the place where wolves and people first started this relationship. <laughs> well, and that's a good place to pause for a moment. So what were people doing then? The day before we domesticated wolves, what was happening? So I think that even in that question belies an assumption that everybody has about this. Like, we domesticated them. We did this intentionally. We There was a group of people who saw a group of wolves and were like, you know what? 
those guys are going to make lovely Boston Terriers in about 30,000 years. So let's just go grab a couple of pups out of a cave, bring them back, maybe even suckle them, but like then rear them within a human setting so that they become more tame. And from that, from that deep insight of like, this is what we need to be doing. We then derive this population of dogs that however many thousand years later, we now have the, all of our companions that we love. That didn't happen. It'd be amazing if it did happen. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Because nobody really knows, people have then very strong opinions about what happened. The strong opinion is predicated upon a lack of evidence, which is always yeah. the case. Right? You, <laughs> you can get very angry, be very certain about things for which you have the least ability to prove with empirical evidence. And so what I think is helpful is to, what can we know? And try and avoid the questions where the answers are only ever going to be opinions because there's no way that we're ever actually going to be able to say one way or another. But it is kind of helpful to inform the debate of all of this. So the first thing that we know about dogs is that they are derived from the gray wolf. There's no coyote, there's no dole, there's no anything else in or all kinds of other canids all over the place. And we know that dogs come from gray wolves. We also know that dogs are an emergent species, if you want to go that far, or an emergent population that results from the interaction between humans and wolves. Now, what the time frame is for that and what that relationship looks like that's when we start to get into a little bit of slightly muddy waters. There are people who say that this is happening at like 25, 30,000, 35,000 even years ago. But archaeologically, the first real evidence that we've got for this really only isn't until like 15 or 20,000 years ago. So where and when it's all happening is just a bit like much less the process. I'm, I fall more on the side that this is that dogs are an accidental byproduct of a relationship that people have had with wolves. But I don't think that people are going out and stealing puppies. I just don't see that because I don't feel like that's ever happened with anything. And even when it has, it hasn't led to a domestic population. So there are unknowns, as in all science, there huge, are unknowns. Huge this, amounts of unknowns. So we like, we like unknowns. I'm, big, I'm a great fan of the unknowns, which is good. But just in your kind of professional opinion, can you talk about this idea of domestication? Like, What was it about humans and that sort of early relationship with wolves? And you made it very clear that we don't have any dates. It's all fuzzy. We don't really know. I'm curious as to kind of what's going on, like, because something's gone on, because here we are with this array of different kinds of dogs. So I like to think about this using an analogy of technology. So you have a phone. You probably use your phone for email among 30, 40 other uses, Twitter, whatever else, right? It's all there on your phone. You were not involved in, and nor was anybody involved in the invention of the phone for the purpose of the emails that you can read at three o'clock in the morning when you start doom scrolling on Twitter, which is what you're also using your phone for. And so what you have is a series of incremental shifts in your relationship with that technology that from a retrospective position looks like you could make an argument that the phone was invented so you could read email at three o'clock in the morning. That's, that's interesting. clearly not the case, no. right? Yeah. And we, make, we often make the same mistake when we think about our domestic animals. So we would say, for example, that we domesticated chickens. We pulled red jungle fowl out of trees and put them, pulled them down so that we could eat them and put them into supermarkets wrapped in cellophane as individual bits and pieces and then and feed them to our pets and put them on pizza and do whatever else we want with them. What we actually see from the history of chickens is that the eating of chickens was something that started well after we had already established this relationship with chickens where they're kind of nearby, but it was several thousand years after this relationship initially started. In fact, you can demonstrate archaeologically and genetically and through a whole series of other archaeological and historical means that humans eating chickens is only something that starts 500 years after they arrive in Europe. 
then they're initially venerated. They are thought of as very important and we put them on church steeples and we write whole sonnets about them. We, we have images of them. They're the national bird of France. And it just goes, we bury them as individuals with people as psychopumps when they're going off to the end of the world. Like it's just, we, chickens are around as a special, amazing thing to be revered. And then this kind of familiarity breeds contempt. It takes about 500 years and then we're eating them. But because we eat them now, there's 80 billion of them. They're the most consumed meat. There's more chicken, there's the most numerous vertebrate of bird on earth. But because we eat them now, we think that's what we always ever did with them. And that's not the case. In the same way that the reason you think you have your phone is to check email, that was not the case. It's our pattern-seeking brains, you see. It's not just pattern-seeking. It's taking the present and pushing it back to the past and saying the reason we use it, that we use it for this now, so that's why it was invented. And because so many of the dogs that we are associated with now are companions, we think that we did this intentionally in order to make this happen now. Well, it's our cause and effect brains, though. We like to also we true. have reasons for doing things, so we make those connections. And we're also really bad with deep time change and dynamic relationships. Really bad. We're so we're bad. I mean, I'm bad, bad with all time. Like yesterday, I have no <laughs> conception of, really. No, it's a really good point you make. You know, that's actually that thing of like when you talk to young children, you know, you talk about, I can't remember, I think it was Richard Dawkins or somebody, an evolutionary biologist, talking about rocks and asking a children, you know, why is a rock pointy? And is it because a bear can scratch itself? And they'll say, yes, it's because of that, because they, they make that connection rather than it just being pointy for <laughs> geological reasons. Yeah, everything has a reason, right? In fact, how common is that phrase? Everything happens for a reason. It's like, okay. <laughs> but that's actually, you've made, a very, you've made a very deep point that not everything happens for a reason. Humans are obsessed by reasons. And rationality and continuity and a direct cause and effect. And then when we tell stories about the natural world, we do so in a way which like this happens and then this happens. And so that's the first thing caused the second thing. And what we do is we take the present and we use that. We say everything that happened in the past led to this. So that's why it happened initially. And that's why we're so attracted to narratives that involve people going into caves and stealing a puppy. And that's how you get dogs. Exactly. And I'm just not sure that's the case. So my preferred analogy with this is that it's the same thing kind of with technology where any relationship generally starts with wariness. Right? Something new is there and your initial reaction is because of that newness, I'm worried about that newness. I don't like change. I have a routine. I don't want something new coming into my life. From that initial wariness, then there is kind of grudging acceptance. It can hang around there. I can be here, but I'm not going to really engage with it. Then there is a threshold gets crossed where you go from tolerance of it or acceptance of it into a mild reliance upon or a convenient aspect of it. From there, it's a bit of a slippery slope until you become obligated to interact with it and have that be a part of your daily routine, where now it's unthinkable that was ever something that you are wary of in the first place. My feeling is that that should be the default position when we think about any domestic animal. We are now heavily reliant upon these things in order to not just have our modern societies be emerging, but in order to sustain them. But the reason we got there is not because we ever chose to do so. Yeah. There are things that happened where we became reliant upon them through accident and happenstance and byproduct, where now it is equally unthinkable that we ever existed without agriculture as it is that we th happened without our phones. So therefore, it must have been a good thing about how we decided to do them in the first place. And when you look at the actual history of anything domestication or agricultural, all the societies that started engaging this right away have 
more disease, have shorter overall lifespans, we're shorter human beings in general, their dietary breadth became significantly reduced. Domestication and settling down was an awful, awful idea. But now, because we're so reliant upon it, we always portray it as like, oh, these smart people who decided to start planting things. And clearly, it was an intentional thing that they started doing. And it's yeah. not ever the case, not once. Yeah, your point is very well made. And I get it. I'm just trying to establish a sort of a sense of an order of things. Domestication of wolves in human history, is that earlier than say, farm animals and things. Yeah, that's a great point. So well, there's one thing we know about dogs, too, is that they're first. Yeah. So the, the question then becomes, if it's not human intentionality, if it's not deciding that we want a Boston Terrier in 10, 15, 20,000 years, what are the circumstances in which you go from awareness of a wolf population on the other side of that landscape and a familiarity with them into a state where we are now dependent upon them and, and for the wolves as well? Right. So something happens with a population of wolves that you would ordinarily not want to have anything to do with. You might respect them. there, You might begrudge them there, but they are not something that you are necessarily going to seek out. So something happens in that. And when that happens, whether that's 30,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago or 15,000 years ago, I mean, it's certainly by 15,000 years, we've got dogs. That's not in question. And that is a good 5,000 years before we have anything else that you and I would recognize as a domestic species, whether plant or animal or microbe or whatever else, right? That's, it's just dogs are first and first by a long ways. And they become integrated within some human societies to the point where that relationship becomes so important. Just explain to us what that relationship is though. When you say they have an important relationship, what is that? Because it's not our relation, modern relationship with dogs, it's something else. Before there's any kind of people with agriculture. So these are hunter-gatherer populations, say eight to 10,000 years ago, and they are completely independent. So there's a population in Japan, in Southern Scandinavia, and on the Southeast corner of the US. And at this point, all these people have dogs and very different kinds of dogs, or at least genomically different dogs, but they're all so integrated into these human populations and whether that's hunting or sentries or some way in which they are integrated within the human societies that they are individual dog burials and individual people burials often with the same kinds of grave goods. They're not perceived as being anything different or being so important to those human societies that they are given the same burial rights yes. and, and sending off as you would a human being. Well, I think about ancient Egypt, you think, is it Anubis? Is a sort of dog's head, the sort of dog-human combined? It's not, I'm not sure that it's, a, there's question marks whether it's a dog or a jackal, but yeah. Some sort king. of king. We'll king. <laughs> Some sort of doggy type. Yes. Yeah. Not a chicken. But yeah, I mean, the fact that you see dog and human combined within their culture and obviously taking on a sort of religious point, it sort of stresses the importance of that relationship. And that happens with a lot of other animals too. So there were some Greek islands that were supposedly initially populated by a group of beings that had dog heads and human bodies and this was just part of the mythology that came around all this and you're absolutely right like as soon as animals start becoming integrated into your material culture into your art into this how you perceive things that's a demonstration of that relationship and we can see a long history of that as well and so we know that dogs are first and everything else comes later but i don't think that that because dogs are first that that then provides a mechanism for anything else. I don't think that the explanation for dogs then gives you any insight into the explanation for chickens or sheep or dogs or cattle or, you know, anything. But it is interesting that dogs are clearly first. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on not just the Tudors from History Hit, my guests and I run through the full gamut of human emotion and experience. 
from the heartbreak of the Virgin Queen. Elizabeth not being able to marry arguably the only man in the world she ever really wanted to marry may have, for that reason, not married anyone else. To a prenatal battle of the sexes. A male and a female seed meet in the womb at conception, and whichever one is stronger determines the sex of the unborn child. From Lady Jane Grey facing her executioner. You can't help but feel just the utmost sympathy for this young girl. To why the Laughing Cavalier is, well, laughing. He strikes me as someone who goes off on a sort of swaggering booze up. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While we're on the subject of mechanisms, can we talk about sort of domestication and the changing of dogs and how we get this great kaleidoscope of different breeds from a type of wolf or a wolf type ancestor. As I was saying, when you've got dogs, dogs are enormously plastic. So wolves are plastic and then dogs dogs are plastic. And what dogs are very, very good at is finding new ways to integrate themselves into human societies. So you would not imagine that a horse is going to be able to smell out cancer, but we have a dog that can do that right? Industrial Revolution in England, you had dogs that were like giant guinea pigs. They were called turnspit dogs and they would run on a wheel and they would turn things in factories. Now we don't do that anymore, but dogs would do that. Dogs are centuries. You're not going to ask your cat to alert you when something else is coming forward. So if there's a job that we would like an animal to do, the dogs are the first ones with their paws got going, I, I think we got this. They don't worry it. about anybody else. Dogs we're are here. like, yeah, I volunteer. Yeah. I mean, and you can even then see how in Portuguese water dogs, you can have dogs on boats that are very good at going out and putting nets out and grabbing things in the water. They can swim very well. So we take advantage of that. If we shoot something, we want dogs to go get that. We can get dogs to do that. Anything we've ever wanted. Why do dogs like balls so much? Like dogs are just 
is obsessed by balls. Like they well, live for balls. Right? Like which is one ball, and it's like that's it. My life is made. Is that because of the going to fetch things? You know, the gun dog, perhaps, or something like that. And so yeah. those that particular type of collies, for example, are just really obsessed by. So there are a huge range of stereotypic wolf behaviors that then show up at to different proportions and different degrees within dog populations that then get accentuated by people. So we can sort of take the overall ability of a wolf and then tweak it and mash it and say, okay, we would really prefer that a dog does this. And then we select the dogs to do those particular things. If, by the way, that job ceases being important. So there were dogs that were very good at herding cattle or of just moving things before railroads, of moving things along. If yeah. that job is no longer required, we just get rid of the dog. So it's actually remarkable that dogs have stuck around for as long as they have when the jobs that we're asking them to do keep disappearing and they keep going. It's like having a bunch of people and go, everybody's fired now because we've now automated everything. We've got chat GPT. We don't need you anymore. And then the dog comes back and goes, oh, but you did say you wanted your laundry done as well. We can do that. We can figure out a way that we can. We can. And there are dogs that put people's socks on who are assistant dogs in houses, who are in wheelchairs in their houses. And the, the assistant dogs make sure that their lives are easier. So this comes down to selection. Yes. We should just pause and just talk about selection for a moment. Selection of traits and then over generations of breeding those traits get and other traits sort of die off it's just interesting there was that weird story about the japanese hikey crab do you know about this story Ooh, tell me more. the crab is a real thing but basically back in the day in i don't know x thousand years ago a lake in japan there was a young samurai warrior drowned in a lake and this was a terrible thing in the village and anyway the fishermen in the lake would catch these particular crabs and every so often they would find these crabs and on the back, the shell was almost a little bit like a face. And actually human suspicion, and well, human superstition rather, out of respect, because they kind of thought, oh, maybe this is the sort of reincarnation of the child samurai. I'm getting all the terminology wrong, but you get my point. They would throw the crabs back. And then after time, they would catch these crabs and the faces would get more and more looking like samurai warriors to the point that when you look at the back of a hiking crab, it's exactly like a samurai warrior, simply because of the way that the selection process worked based on an old Japanese legend. I urge you to Google Heike Crab. And you look at it, you're like, it looks exactly like a samurai, the kind of eyes and the... Anyway, selection, that was, that was the yeah, point. Yeah, selection. Making. And so dogs are so good at filling roles of jobs within human societies, again, all over the world, that the selection for the vast majority of time that there have been dogs has been to do those jobs. You don't really care what they look like so long as looking like a particular kind of dog doesn't prevent it from doing a job. But once a dog is particularly good at a job, then there's a selection to kind of refine that a little bit. So you get a lot of small dogs crawling down holes or ratting dogs or Portuguese water dogs, which end up with a little bit more flesh between their fingers to allow them to get through the water a bit faster. So there's all these attributes that make the dog better at doing that job that gets selected for because that's what we're doing. But what matters is the job. Then in the kind of mid to second half of the 19th century, the job becomes a lot less important than the fashion. And what people start doing is closing breeding lines and then attributing this whole kind of selection predicated upon just what the dog looks like, not what it does. And that shift from a job to what its withers height is, what its ears look like, whether its tail is upturned, what colors it has, so you're going for an aesthetic rather than a job, and that is modern dog breeds. Only selection based upon aesthetic. Can I ask you then, why was that sudden shift in the middle of the 19th century? What had happened that dogs as tools and selection based on usefulness turned into a kind of, well, it's that, it seems that, that sort of decadence. You get to a point in society when society's got, well, we've got nothing better to do. 
let's turn food into art, as we seem to do now, or let's turn dogs into art. So there's also, I mean, Darwinian ideas are kicking around at this point. There's large social changes and there's a kind of a fancying thing, which is like, oh, I can take this population and play with it and then allow my imagination to drive what I want this to look like. And dogs are not the first to do this. There were chicken shows for 30 years before there were dog shows. So dogs were sort of as part of this whole idea of thinking about the aesthetics of it. And also you can put your stamp on it. I mean, half the dogs, like a Jack Russell Terrier is a Jack Russell Terrier. A Doberman Pinscher was Lewis Doberman. There were people who were doing this and naming these lines after themselves. There was a lot of social change associated with this whole thing and ways of thinking about people in this as well. And there's a great book that Warboys put out recently in 2018 about this whole phenomenon. And there's been a lot written about the relationship between racism and dog breeds and it kind of the Nazi regime taking on board all these ideas as well. And so you get into a lot of really sketchy scientific ideas being applied to people where it kind of starts with the animal. Are we sort of getting into sort of eugenics territory here? And- Absolutely. There is a very sketchy relationship between dog breeds and eugenics as well. Just that if you can select dogs and chickens for aesthetics and you can assign superiority based upon perceived traits, it's not that much of a leap then to start thinking of humans in the same way. And then you make that a part of your nationality and you make a part of your active policies and you make a part of your migration policy and whatever else. And then you start thinking of humans in the way that you were thinking about these breeds that, again, you're selecting exclusively for their physical traits and their aesthetic attributes. It's not that big of a leap to get from that into really some horrible governmental policies, which end up in the horrific denigration of and dehumanization of people who do not look the way that you want them to look because they don't fit that aesthetic. Tell us about the famous Fox Farm experiment. Yeah, so okay, so now kind of diverting quickly away from all things Nazi and terrible into... <laughs> we can talk Nazi if you want. I <laughs> no, mean, no, no, no. Hitler had his dog, didn't he have a Doberman? I don't know, maybe I imagine. Uh, that's Did a he good have... question, actually. Hitler wasn't a notorious dog fan. Maybe it was an Alsatian or maybe, yeah, could or maybe well I'm just imagining that. But anyway. There was a TV show a while ago where they said the biggest marketing coup was taking German shepherds and renaming them Alsatians so people didn't know the German connection after World War One, right? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. Anyway, fashion and dogs is still a massive thing, as we mentioned earlier. Oh, well, of course it is, right? And not just that, but pigeons and chickens and rabbits. You know, we have giant rabbits now. We have cats that are intentionally breeding with wild species, where we have to go through three or four rounds of back crossing in order to get a population to give them all these ridiculous coat colors because it's fun. And they can leap like 12 feet in the air and whatever else. That's awesome. It becomes fashion. And that's the shift that takes place, where you are accentuating the aesthetic over the job. And that was the big change that took place in the 19th century. And that's the legacy we're left with. And the problem with that, too, is that we tend to then equate a particular dog breed with a particular kind of behavior or a particular kind of way in which it fits in dog. That's a great family dog or whatever else. And there was a fabulous paper last year that demonstrated that however much you want to believe that a breed is equivalent to a behavior, it just doesn't exist. There is no behavior. Let's talk about fox farms. The fox farm experiment. There's a scientist called Dmitry Belayev. He's working in a place called Novosibirsk in Siberia, in Russia, and he gets a population of gray foxes. And he has this idea, Gouldian way of thinking, that rather than we're selecting for specific traits, he thought if you selected for one trait, then a whole suite of other traits would come along on board with that. So what he imagined was that he called it disruptive selection. So that if you selected for tameness, and that could be measured, and what he did measure it by was You get this population in who is not considered to be domestic, although we can get to that. You cage them and you put your hand into the cage. You then can measure the fox's reaction to that. And at two extremes, there is the fox that is deeply scared and worried and has nowhere to go. 
and expresses that fear and that anxiety by barking, by sniping, by trying to bite you, and just like cowering in fear, which by the way gets coded as aggression, which is not aggression, it's fear. And it's, not, it's trying to keep you away from it. So it's not actively trying to murder you, it just doesn't want you to come after it. On the opposite end of that extreme, you have foxes who are, for lack of a better word, more curious, who will then not be so wary, will approach you, will sniff your hand and be kind of like, okay, I'm kind of, who are you? But like you might see a dog on the street and you've, you've seen dogs with these same similar kinds of reactions as you're walking by them. Some will come after you and others will be more cool with your, from a, a position of ignorance of who you are, still give you the benefit of the doubt and be happy to meet you. And what he said was that if I start selecting for just the tame versions of this, and I only allow those foxes in the top 10% of that curious fraction and breed those together, I think what will start happening is I will get all the rest of the traits that people associate with the domestication syndrome. So spotted coats, upturned tails, shortened overall faces, changes in the bodily structure, maybe a little bit smaller, maybe, and he started getting a lot of these traits. They were starting to bark more. They would approach people and even wag tails and they started behaving in ways that people perceived to be very much like dogs. And his whole idea of this was all you needed was selection for tameness, an extreme selection for tameness on a very short period of time, and all the rest of the traits that people associate with domestication would then, without having to select for them, would then just come to the fore and be part of that whole package of what was considered to be now a domestic population. He, by the way, did the same thing on the opposite extreme and only selected in the bottom 10%- Evil foxes. Evil foxes. <laughs> Basically what you're selecting for is the kind of opposite extremes of fight or flight distance. You know, how far away will an animal allow you to get before it turns and, and goes the opposite way or get upset if it's penned or caged and a little bit and it has nowhere to go. And then there was this whole apocryphal story that showed up in the literature, but I'm not sure there's any evidence for it, that they did the same thing with beavers and that they were then, then the Russian government got involved and said, okay, if you can select for this extreme version of really nasty, aggressive beavers, we're going to put those in the front line. So when the Americans invade, they're going to be met with really nasty beavers that are all going to go after you because we've created this animal that is just going to attack anything that's not Russian. That's a Cold War story that, my goodness, there's Lovely a movie, isn't it, like Rampaging Beavers <laughs> in the 1950s. Yeah, exactly. And I repeat it. I mean, it's a brilliant experiment in a lot of ways. And it was very forward thinking. And it's been going on since the 30s. And they've been able to maintain this population. And it's fascinating. And now you can even buy these Really? Boxes. It's still going? It's still... Oh, yeah. It's still going. Just in Russia, is this? Well, yes. But they have established relationships with a lot of universities outside of Russia to do a lot of, there's the genomic analysis, there's isotopic analysis, behavioral analyses that are going on. So there's a big global network of labs involved in the research and evaluation of this continued experiment where they're maintaining these lines. And then what they'll do is they'll cross the lines back with each other and then look for the traits and how they're segregating with variation that you can see in the genome to try and identify the genomic underpinnings for this kind of behavior that he was selecting. Wasn't there a, a similar thing like Japanese wasp breeders? giant wasps, but they were going to be friendly wasps. So yeah, so the wasp story gets interesting too, because what that does is it, for me, that demonstrates the issue with the Belaya fox farm. And we published this paper a couple of years ago was that it turns out that the population of foxes that he got, that Belaya started his experiment with, were actually from Estonia, from a fox farm where they were breeding foxes for their pelts. So again, this is kind of a job as well when we're thinking about why are you selecting things in animals? And sometimes it's for the job they do, sometimes it's for the aesthetics, and sometimes it's for some other trait they have, whether that's meat or milk or eggs or coats. And it turns out that the fox farm that was in Estonia got their foxes from a place called Prince Edward Island, which is just off the coast of Canada. 
And at Prince Edward Island, there was a population of foxes on that island already, which were different because they were on an island, they were slightly behaviorally different. And there was a couple of brothers there who had tried for decades to try and breed these foxes in captivity because there was such a demand for these pelts. And they thought, well, if we can get a population to breed in captivity, then we can start to increase the supply, which will meet this demand because there's such a demand, we can make a lot of money out of this. It took them two decades to get any two foxes to breed in captivity where they would produce pups who themselves were able to breed in captivity. So this was not a minor biological hurdle to overcome. And when they were finally able to do so, they sold a pair of breeding foxes for the equivalent in modern money of a half a million dollars. Holy what? Half a million dollars. Wow. And that's how hard this was. These were not domestic in any way that we would think about. And there is a massive biological hurdle to actually breeding in captivity. And a lot of even rabbits, we mm. hutches, freak out inside and they will eat their own young. And there's all kinds of terrible things when we cage animals. Look at all of our zoos. You go, oh, look at that polar bear. Oh, look, he's doing the same thing. Oh, my God. Like he's just pacing back and forth and pacing back and forth. Animals freak out when they're in captivity. So what's fascinating about this is that so all the heavy duty lifting of getting foxes to breed in captivity was already done in Prince Edward Island over a couple of decades of effort. You have a massive bottleneck. You take a subset of that population, you take it to Estonia, you have a subset of that population now, and you take it to Novosibirsk for Belayev to start working on. So the population he's starting with has already undergone multiple decades of heavy selection to be able simply to subsist within human captivity. And a lot of these traits that he claimed came out from a selection of tameness were already present in Prince Edward Island a couple of decades before. The other thing is a lot of these traits started appearing probably not as a result of the selection for tameness, but simply because you had a very genomically identical population that had been through a series of bottlenecks. That, so you get all these crazy traits that start popping up simply because you've got a lot of alleles for something that would have coded for something that would never have been there in the wild population, but now are there because of reduced population sizes. So there is a question mark about the degree to which these traits are occurring because of this heavy selection for tameness and how much of them are just coming out because of the population, the demographic history of these foxes having been through a series of bottlenecks starting on Prince Edward Island. And that's to say nothing of the fact that nobody knows what the domestication syndrome is. You look at 10 different papers that talk about what its definition is and they, they can't agree on even the traits that are supposed to be a part of it. And nobody's also demonstrated a single genetic mechanism that explains all of them either. It's, again, like you were saying, these, these apocryphal stories that if a story sounds great, everybody just believes it without requiring the evidence. And when you look for that evidence, it just fades before your fingertips and it doesn't really exist. So we're saying it's a brilliant experiment. It's demonstrated a lot. It's amazing from a behavioral perspective. And there's a huge amount to be learned from it. But as a proxy for domestication, it doesn't work for me. It's too easy a link to make. And there's all kinds of things that are fundamentally wrong about it to the point that it is not what we can think of as a way that would describe how dogs were domesticated, for instance. Sorry, I'm just slightly obsessed by Japanese wasps again suddenly. I was just trying to... I'm just trying, so it was a, for competitions, right. isn't it? They would breed... Well, the competitions come later, and that's where it is an, an interesting analogy with dogs. So at first you have this... There are wasps, and they hang out in these forests in Japan. And the larvae of these wasps are considered by some to be a culinary delicacy. So people would go out, very much like those crabs that you were talking about, or any sort of thing that if there is a foodstuff that is available seasonally, when you had to go out and pick apples and you couldn't grow them, you know, force them to grow, there would be something that was available. You would go out and you would get it and you would bring it back and say, this is the time of year when we can eat this. When I was growing up in Turkey, we, there were these things called ediks, which are baby green plums. And there was only like a six to eight week period over the course of the year. And my brother and I would go through kilograms of this stuff, knowing that we had a very finite period of time when we could consume <laughs> Eat them all now. Right? It was just yeah. great. And just devour them. They were sour and small and perfect. And you could suck on the seeds. It was just great. So there was a period of time of the year when people would go out and harvest, as it were, these larvae from these wasps. 
the demand for them starts to increase because people like them. And if you and I were to look at them in the dish, they don't look terribly attractive to me, but I've never also never tasted one. Maybe they're delicious. And so people started constructing wooden boxes in the forest for queens of these wasps to go into. And what this allowed for was an increase in the population because a lot of these colonies would not survive in overwinter if the winter was particularly harsh. But because they could be in the boxes, it gave them a bigger footprint of an escape from the harsher winter conditions. So now populations that wouldn't have survived are surviving. So you're getting an increase in the number of wasps, you're getting an increase in the number of larvae, and that increases the supply of larvae. So you could argue that this is a kind of selection that is being placed on a population simply because people are attracted to eating the larva of the wasp as a delicacy. And they've done ethnographies on this where they have questionnaires and they were saying to these people, okay, was it ever your intent to domesticate this population? They're like, well, no, we just were interested in eating the larva. But when you look at the long-term ramifications of this, it's not that dissimilar to other relationships that we have with plants and animals that then start to take on a domestication thing. But what's most interesting to me is that that's not the important part. The important part is when they get involved in competitions. They start becoming like, who can grow the biggest larva? In the same way that any competition around agriculture yeah. in the UK or in the US is like, who's got the biggest watermelon? Who's got the biggest squash? Show me your largest pig. In Japan, you can buy like, apples that size. You know, they have like those crazy exactly. giant apples and things. So the massive difference and the crazy human selection that takes place is not around the initial consumption, is not around altering the demographic profiles of these wasps because we're providing them with a the material culture which makes sure that they can survive over winter. The massive change happens when they become part of a competition involving an aesthetic. Who's got the biggest one? <laughs> how big do these? How big are these yeah. wasps? Just so our listeners have an idea. They're big. I don't. I mean, not the wasps. The it's the larva, right? It's, it's like, the larva that is. Doesn't a giant larva turn into a giant wasp? I'm just imagining. Quite like, possibly, or maybe they, maybe they don't survive that long. Anyway, your point is well made. What starts off as just a kind of culinary delicacy turns into a massive gargantuan, completely out of anything that nature would ever have <laughs> at a state fair yeah. and with no one ever intending for this to be the next domestic animal. Like nobody goes, hey, you know, we have chickens and we have pigs and we have sheep. Let's go domesticate the wasp. That's not what happens here. And it forces us to think about how relationships change and how it's incremental along a continuum of changing selection pressures and byproducts where that selection is for something different predicated upon what you've already got. But you don't start having the competition of it. No, you're right. Selection is one of those magical things, selection, that it makes total sense. But obviously, it, it, most of human civilization, we didn't really understand it. And then some Darwin came along and like, oh, it might sort of all make sense. But it's interesting. What a pleasure to chat. It's been really fun, really interesting. We've covered a lot of ground in great rapidity. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. A really enjoyable conversation. Yeah, it's been really enjoyable. This, uh, honestly, the kind of science involved in this, I and mean, actually we've touched on some deep things as well, not just dogs, mm. but actually the uncertainty in science and such, which is an important things to get across, I think. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Dallas. That's it. Thank you very much for listening and a very special thank you to listener Andrew for suggesting the topic for this show. Really, really interesting subject. Um, gets you into all kinds of fascinating territory. So, Andrew, thank you very much for that. And if you've got a suggestion, be like Andrew. Uh, email us at patented at historyhit.com and we would love to feature your ideas. And I will look forward to your company next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.